Oi, oi, people. Silky here, death of guitar pop. And you are listening to Stateside Madness because madness are the bollocks. <laughs> I'd like you to meet Hello, and welcome to the Stateside Madness Podcast, the one and only podcast of the official Madness American Band Service. I'm Lori, along with my co-host Polly, here to bring you news, reviews, and deep dives into the nutty sound of the British pop band Madness. Well, hello. Welcome to another episode of the Stateside Madness podcast. I'm Lori. And I'm Polly. Last episode, we talked about the album Seven. We did an album deep dive. That album was released on October 2nd, 1981. So it roughly coincided with the anniversary. Well, this episode roughly coincides with the anniversary of the film Madness Take It or Leave It which was released on October 14th, 1981. So Polly, I've been bugging you for, I I would say going on a year now that I wanted to do an episode about this film. So thank you for finally uh, giving in. No, it's uh, it's certainly worthy topic. I don't know that I refused. I just don't know whether it came up. We just had other stuff to do. We've had some really good interviews and guests that obviously took precedence and this kind of fell by the wayside, so... I'm glad we're finally doing it. Yeah, same here. Yeah. I don't even think this movie was released in the U.S., was it? I don't believe it was, no. So it is a film. I guess it would be classified as a biopic. However, the band members are playing themselves. They don't have actors. You know, it's not like uh, Rami Malek, you know, playing Freddie Mercury or... um, Taryn Egerton playing Elton John. This is the boys playing themselves and reenacting pivotal scenes in their formative years. Uh, Yes, Laurie. And it's not that dissimilar from other uh, films of that era. I'm thinking about uh, probably most notably Led Zeppelin's uh, song remains the same in that uh, the members of the band sort of bring their own to it. Although this was, you might say roughly scripted, based on the events of their life. Um, You know, this is, yeah, the guys playing the parts um, and sort of bringing their own uh, flavor a bit to it. And uh, it's something that happened a great deal in the 70s and the 80s, where um, I think as a way to promote the band, getting on a different sort of media provided some sort of synergy in that way. And so people were doing it kind of all over the place. Of course, we've got Pink Floyd released two movies in that amount of time. Like I said, Led Zeppelin, it's all over the place. Slade has uh, very, um, had preceded this with uh, Slade in Flame by about four years. So this was being done a lot. See, I didn't know any of that. I wasn't familiar with any of those. So let's kind of talk about where this falls in the timeline. So last episode, we were talking about Madness 7. And it was recorded over the summer of 1981 in the Bahamas. 
after a big U.S. tour. So they did like a U.S. tour in the early part of 81. Then they recorded Seven and Seven was released in October. And this was just a, just a few, released just a few weeks after Seven. So like these two events are kind of, you know, almost concurrent with each other. So they started filming in uh, March of 1981, March 9th, 1981, in and around Camden Town. And um, I, I guess, I'm not really sure whose idea it was. Woody had said in an interview, after three years in the music business, they thought, we've done it all. Why not make a film? The, the film was partially financed by the band's first big royalty check. So I guess each band member kicked in 20,000 pounds, seven band members, 140,000 pounds. Stiff Records kicked in 250,000 pounds. So we have a budget of just under 400 pounds. Ha, I wish. We have a budget of just under 400,000 pounds, about 390K. So it was really still very low budget for the kind of film that it is. So the, the film shoot took about a week to do. And actually during this time, somehow Dave Robinson broke his ankle. And this comes up, like if you watch the DVD commentary, he mentions it like three, four, five times, his broken ankle. So I spent the last few days of the movie, A, in extreme pain, and B, with a cast on in a wheelchair trying to control madness. Not easy at the best of times. So as we mentioned, the film was released October 14th, 1981 in the UK. I don't know that it was ever released in the United States. There was an initial DVD release in 2002. And then back in October, 2013, so nine years ago, they re-released the DVD along with a CD of the soundtrack. So why don't we get down to talking about the movie itself as it's presented? And we're going to refer to a lot of these segments just as it's listed uh, in the chapters of the film. So if you're watching the DVD, you're playing along, this is what we're talking about. First up then would be, of course, opening credits. And with opening credits, it happens to be that the band is in a cab on their way to the airport. Now, they improvise the scenes of the band with their entourage at the airport. Uh, and what features prominently in it? A song we all know. It's Don't Quote Me On That. You know, the opening sequence, I think, is very fun. You know, it's not taking itself too seriously. You know, the boys are playing with a soccer ball. Somebody sticks a sticker uh, on the back of somebody else's jacket. I think we've got Woody with his, I don't know, then wife, girlfriend. Um, you know, it's interesting. In this movie, there's a few 
exes, you know, appearing on film where I don't know, you know, man, if I was in a feature film with one of my exes, I think I would, uh, I would not be too happy about that, but that's just how it happened. Anything that you want to say about the opening credits? Nope. Okay. I think I'm going to keep it short and sweet as best I can. All right. Sounds good. So after the opening credits, the film shifts to black and white. And I guess this is supposed to indicate the past. And we see Tamo walking down the street to a record store where he starts shoplifting. And of course, that's that's par for the course for Tamo, isn't it? Uh, no, uh, that it is. And of course, something he's spoken of often. As it would see many members of the band, uh, shoplifting tends to be their way with the boys. Yes. Uh, at this point in the film, we're hearing the song, The Business, which of course was the instrumental version of Take It or Leave It. for this Polly I did some reading and I also went back and watched the GVD commentary with Dave Robinson and Chris Foreman and I didn't realize something had happened so they shot for, on black and white film for two days these initial scenes they sent it off to the film lab and something happened to the film at the film lab where it was bleached that's the word they use bleached and so none of the footage was usable. They had to completely reshoot the first two days worth of footage. And there was also no budget for a steady cam. So the camera really moves around a lot in these opening scenes. Uh, the other thing I found interesting was Dave Robinson was complaining that the crew was never ready. But part of that was because he never called action. He would use any other word, but he wouldn't use that word action. And so the crew didn't know when they were supposed to start working, which I thought was kind of amusing. So then there's another scene where we see Chrissy Boy in an apartment with his real then wife, Sue, and a kid that's supposed to be his son, but the kid wasn't his son. The kid was played by an actor. And Chris recounted how, I guess, the, the child actor's father was away in prison and so somehow the kid latched onto Chris and started calling Chris dad. And Chris was like, uh-uh, no. Yeah, a little awkward, a little awkward. A little bit. Moving on then to chapter three, it is Lee. And yes, about our boy Tomo. Now on the 2002 DVD release, for some reason, according to Lori, because that's the copy she owns, uh, they spelled it L-E-I-G-H, or what maybe some of us might even call Lay. Um, now on the 2013 CD-DVD release, which I have, they had corrected it back to Lee, L-E-E. -E. Interesting? I don't know. We've got a podcast to put content in. Uh, 
So uh, the, the basis of the chapter is we've got Lee going off for saxophone lessons, but apparently he's got a jacked saxophone because the serial number had been filed off. Coincidence? I don't think so. So the instructor tells him to come back when he has the receipt. Now, apparently that part is based on a true story, but it might be Lee telling the story, so we may not even know if that's true. You know, the thing I found hysterical about this is Lee is lugging the saxophone around in a garbage bag. He doesn't even have a proper case for it. And that, I think, just completely exemplifies the... I guess the humble beginnings of this band, right? I mean, that he can't even afford to steal a saxophone case. Uh, that would be true. And of course, we all know the story from One Step Beyond. Apparently at that point, Lee didn't even know how to tune a saxophone. So true to life, maybe, uh, you know, he was had aspirations before he had talent. But anyways, uh, also featured in that chapter, we've got an appearance by John Hassler. You remember John Hassler? The original singer, the original drummer, that didn't take, turned on to being their manager early, early on. So we got John Hassler. We've got Chris at the unemployment office, and Chris recruits John to play drums in that scene. You know, a lot of the scenes in this film are either at the unemployment office or at the various jobs that I guess the boys were assigned, you know, through the unemployment office. And they really are making a point, I think, of is showing that they didn't really they didn't really fit in anywhere so i like a lot a lot of these reenactments some of them are very clever so next up scene four is called mike and chris and they actually filmed this in mike barson's mother's actual front room and we see chris mike and lee playing i'm walking by fats domino and there's already some tension between Lee and Mike. I mean, you mentioned Polly a few minutes ago about Lee not even knowing how to tune his sax. Well, Mike and Lee get into it because Lee's sax is off key and they start fighting about the key. And this is kind of a recurring theme throughout this film is uh, Mike kind of being a little bit of the controller of the group. And I think also Lee being, you know, a little short tempered. Chapter five then brings us to dun dun dun. That would be Suggs, of course. Now known as the face of madness, but there was a point early on when he really wasn't involved with them. But this tells how he got involved. So we meet Suggs, and now Suggs is with Chalky, for those of you who don't know. Chalky is a character who's been in the periphery of madness for some time. Now, Suggs and Chalky are playing pool at a youth rec center. We have then Chris, who was working at a post office, and gets fired. <laughs> so Mike and Cy are featured in the subway tunnel, playing with fluorescent light bulbs, which they use as lightsabers. Now, bear in mind that um, it was early 1977 when Star Wars came out. So that would fit or jive pretty well with about the same time period that the boys were coming up in the band. So no wonder young men would have gone out and seen Star Wars, seen fluorescent bulbs plugged in, in the subway, and they would act out a little Star Wars scene. Now, at that they, point... They get chased away by the police. And, and they do get chased away by the police. And so what would be a more fitting song than On the Beat Pete? <laughs> 
Chapter 6, which is called The Invaders' First Appearance, June 1977. And suddenly, we're in color. I don't even think I caught that the first three or four times I saw the film. But they've now shifted from the black and white, which was presumably the past. Now, I guess we're in present time. So there's a couple things you see. So they're playing at Cy Birdsall's house party. And they're reenacting this because this actually did happen, some variation of it. Sandra Barson, Mike's first wife, actually plays his girlfriend in the film. The band are out in the garden and they're struggling through a rendition of Jailhouse Rock. The singer that they chose for this was a guy named Gerard Kelly. And I guess he never even heard Jailhouse Rock before when, when they recorded the film. And you can kind of tell, I mean, it's, it's pretty bad. But I think that that's the point they were trying to make is that these guys really weren't that great. After they play, Mike Barson gets into a verbal altercation with Cy about the fact that the band has been relegated to the back garden. He was expecting the band was going to play inside the house. And while this argument is taking place, we hear, don't look back. So moving on to chapter seven, it's about Carl. Fairly short at that, not a lot of content happening in it, but they're introducing each of the players that we've come to know and love. And in this scene, Chaz then approaches Mike, actually interrupts Mike while he's making out with Sandra and says he wants to play in the band. Okay, next we have chapter eight, Mark and Woody. So we cut to a scene with Woody and Mark and two teenagers, they're twins. They're rehearsing in a band. At this point, when they were filming this, I guess Woody's hair was very long. So he has it tucked under a stocking cap for most of the film. So first we see this awkward scene with Woody and Mark and these two twins. And you can kind of tell that Mark and Woody are much better than these guys that they're auditioning for. And then we have Mike, Lee, Chris, and John rehearsing with Carl on bass. And the song that they're playing is actually Razorblade Alley. 
noticed a kind of a recurring theme throughout this is Mike really comes across as not very nice. Chris even mentions this in the commentary. He says, Mike comes across as too unpleasant, too unpleasant. Like he maybe was not really that unpleasant in real life. So I don't know if he was playing it up for the film, but he really, you know, kind of comes across as being just very controlling. And then Suggs and Chalky show up and John Hassler introduces Suggs to the rest of the band. And we kind of see throughout this film, John Hassler is always the one that's making the connections. John introduces Suggs to the boys. Later on, he's going to introduce somebody else to the boys. And he's just kind of the, the glue that holds everything together. Very early on, it's really very fascinating to watch. So having introduced Suggs, Suggs gets on the mic and sings, see you later, alligator. And then Mike and Lee get into another argument and Lee quits the band. Then we cut to another rehearsal where Suggs is singing Sunshine Voice with Mike, Chris, John, and Carl. No Lee. Mike agrees to give Carl a ride home if he stays to rehearse. So Carl relents, stays to play a little longer. But then Carl is riding with Mike and Sandra, and then Mike stops the car, tells Carl, there's the bus stop, and uh, makes him get out. And of course, the buses aren't running that late, so Carl has to walk. While this exchange is happening, the song Embarrassment is playing on the car radio. Received the letter just the other day. Dancing, I wanna know you no more. gets home he's pissed off rightfully so and then the next morning we see mike and chris at the breakfast table now if you're watching this movie watch very closely watch the milk bottle the level of the milk changes in the milk bottle it's amusing and then mike gets up to call suggs because suggs is a no-show for practice it turns out that suggs had been watching a soccer match all night moving on to chapter nine it's called Maybe We Should Join Another Band. So in this chapter, Suggs has been fired. No surprise there. So John Hasler becomes the singer. John then brings in Gary Dovey to play drums. Lee at that moment is working as a truck driver for a construction site. Where have you been, John O'Groves? Do you remember that line? I do remember you know, that line. I had, to, I, I had to look it up. I had no idea what that meant. 
So I guess that that's something that British people will say to each other because John O'Groats, I guess, is like the northernmost point in the UK. So if they say, hey, where have you been? John O'Groats, they're, they're, you know, it's like, where, where have you been? The North Pole? You know, that kind of thing. Incidentally, though, I am so grateful that I had subtitles turned on because I got to tell you, the first two times I watched this, I couldn't understand a thing anybody was saying. <laughs> I don't know if it was the accent or the fact that some of them are mumbling or what. I mean, I needed the subtitles for this. Uh, and as it turns out, Tomo, you know, being Tomo, uh, there's a mishap while he was driving the truck that leads him to quitting. Famous line, post me pay on to us. There you go. That's as much as a way of faking an English <laughs> accent as you're going to get out of me. Yeah, we, we didn't want to ruin that because that's one of the best scenes of the movie. So if you haven't seen it, you got to see it. And Lee, you know, he does not get enough credit. He is a very gifted comedic actor. I mean, he's really got the gift of timing and his reaction shots are priceless in this scene. He, he could have had a, a career as an actor, I think. Then we have Mike Barson showing up at Mark's house. Now, Mark's mother in this play by an actress, not Mark's real mom. Mark has to ride in the back of the van with a lawnmower. Mike takes Mark to rehearse with Gary, Chris, and John. Gary knew Mark, so that's how Mark got recruited, as the story goes. Now, about at this point, the band is practicing the song Mistakes that we all know and love. And following that, Mike says that Mark can be in the band. plastered we have Suggs and lee working as plasterers on a job site and of course they both get fired <laughs> and uh while they're working of course we hear that's the way to do it He's rejoined the band again, and he promptly gets into a fist fight with Gary Dovey. They've been playing Rough Kids, the Ian Dury song, and Lee didn't feel that Gary was playing in time. Man, Lee's really scrappy back in the day, too, wasn't he? I mean, he just, you know, short and thin, but he liked to get into scraps. So Gary leaves, and now they need a drummer. And then Mark suggests Woody. 
Moving on to chapter 11, the title being Let's Have Some Fun Tonight. You might remember that line from early Invaders song. So Woody then shows up for practice in a navy blue stocking cap. Suggs is back on vocals. John Hasler is their manager at this point. The band is finally starting to come together in recognizable form. In that line from that song, it's rocking in A-flat. some moves during that guitar solo for that song you know he uh i mean while the guys were young they they were really some good looking guys but chris was just really getting into it and then after they play john hassler comes in and he says i've got some good news and bad news uh the good news is you've got a gig the bad news is it's at acklam hall which i guess was reputed to be a very rough place and that brings us to chapter 12, and it would be at Acklam Hall in November 1978. Now, the band is there with their entourage, Carl and Chalky, some others. Some skinheads are at the bar starting to get aggressive. Then Mark's mother shows up. Who knows why? So there's three elements kind of going on at this um, scene that feature prominently in madness folklore. Two are songs, one being Swan Lake, the other being In the Middle of the Night, the other being the Headbutt Dance, also featured uh, quite a bit in Dance Graze. Uh, 
now also featured in that scene, we've got Chalky and Carl. They're dancing in the audience. Clive Langer makes an appearance and he talks to the band backstage. Then ends up being a fight kicking off in the men's room. So I just want to comment on that, that fight in the men's room because there's the scene where Carl and kind of the head skinhead are like getting in each other's faces. Then you see the bathroom stalls open and there's like 15 guys in the stalls. It's like, oh shit. And then somebody busts out the light bulb and you can't see anything. And that is like, there's one moment there where it's like just a little bit terrifying, you know? And from what I understand, they didn't even adequately show what a rough place that Aquam Hall really was. So that brings us to number 13, that nutty sound. And we have the band. Ah, that brings us to chapter 13, that nutty sound. And we have the band escaping from Aquam Hall being chased by a dozen or so skinheads. Now, one of the cars didn't start and they actually had to push it to get it going. So there's a lot of tension in this scene. Now, I guess in real life, this did happen, but Chalky and Carl got left behind and somehow they were able to blend in with the rest of the crowd because I guess they did kind of look like skinheads. But when that happened in real life, one of the cars backfired and people actually thought it was gunshots. Now, in the US, I could see that. I don't think that this was very common, the idea of gunshots, you know, in a bar. I mean, granted, it was the 70s, but you don't really hear about a lot of shootings in England. It's not as common. So again, I think they're conveying that this was a really, really rough place. So after they've survived, they're brushed with death. We cut to a bar where the band are drinking very heavily, and they're discussing changing their name to Madness. And then Mike just, he hears this and he says, I don't like it, Chris. But it was obviously based off of the song Madness. one of my favorite scenes in the film the subway scene and the boys are just being goofy doing what they do best there's a vicar in the subway who's speaking of star wars played by alfie curtis now he had a bit part in the original star wars and poor woody can't seem to hold his liquor so he's uh he's not feeling too well presumably the next day sometime after this night out Mike and Chris are working together as gardeners. Now, Chris has said this was a creative license because he never actually worked with Mike. But we see Mike spray painting that nutty sound on the back door of the van. And he's getting upset. Oh, look at it. It's running. And it's funny because he almost seems to be getting upset at Chris about the fact that what he painted is running. And that's just kind of this is the way they're painting him in this movie and i mean 
he really comes off as kind of kind of snotty. You know, I, I mean, again, the band has said that that's all kind of an exaggeration that he was not really like that, but I don't know. So then we see Mark, Chris, and Mike at the Dublin Castle, which uh, fans know is the spiritual home of madness. And they're talking to the proprietors. And they ask Mike, what kind of music do you play? And he says, we play a little bit of everything, a little jazz, which is obviously a lie. They're just trying to get the gig. Now, I recently learned that it was actually country and Western that they said they played, that the the bar owners were looking for a country and Western band. And they claimed that they played country and Western, which, of course, reminds me of that old scene in the Blues Brothers. Uh, what kind of music do you usually have here? Oh, we got both kinds. We got country and Western. Oh, I know it well. So then the proprietors ask the boys, what do you call yourselves? And they respond, madness. And you can kind of see their faces drop, the, uh, the, the man and woman behind the bar. You can see their, oh, what did, I get our, what did we get ourselves into? Uh, incidentally, the Dublin Castle owner's wife is played by actress Doreen Kyo, who is well known for the series Coronation Street. Chapter 14, it's Dublin Castle. Now, at this point, John Hassler is emceeing, where the crowd seems about to riot. Madness are actually across town at the Nashville Rooms, opening for the specials. Now, the doorman of the Nashville Rooms won't let Madness leave until the specials take stage. And, of course, the specials at that point running a little bit late. So we've got the tension building. Can they make it across town to the Dublin Castle? Well, they do. They race across town. And we hear the song. Solid gone. <laughs> okay, boys, let's get a real solid gone. Shake it, Mr. Sister, too. I'm gonna make a buggy buggy going around in the shoes. Buggy buggy buggy. I'm So there we have tension building. Can they make it across town in time? Meanwhile, back at Dublin Castle, John Hassler is getting pelted with drinks. The band finally does make it. They take the stage and Carl parts his way through the crowd to introduce the song. How does Carl introduce the song, you say? Oh, in the old familiar way. Hey, you! Don't watch that. Watch this. This is the heavy, heavy monster sound. The nuttiest sound around. So if you've come in off the street and you're beginning to feel the heat, well, listen, buster, you better start to move your feet to the rockinest, rock steady beat of madness. One step beyond.
boy, I was really surprised to see what a small stage this was at Dublin Castle. Uh, it's amazing to me that all seven of them could fit on it, especially with Carl's dancing and his arms swinging all over the place. There's like no room to move on that little dinky stage. So that brings us to chapter 15, Pathway Recording Studios. So the boys are getting ready to record their demo. And Woody unfortunately gets lost on his way to Pathway Studios. So the rest of the band sits around with Clive Langer eating someone's lunch. They think it's Woody's. There's a conversation. Are you sure it's Woody's bag? It was stuck in the bass drum. What's meat doing in it then? Because we all know that Woody is a vegetarian. Well, so when Woody's a no-show, they finally decide to leave and the studio agrees to charge them for a partial day. You know, Clive Langer says, cut our losses and get out. And Clive also suggests they should cut a demo for Warner Brothers because then Warner will give them the money for another recording session. Then we see Clive Langer at the record label. We assume that it's, uh, it's Warner and he gets them signed. And the next time they're getting ready to go to the recording studio, now that Warner has paid the bill, the rest of the band pulls Woody off his bike, ties him up and throws him into the back of the van. They do not want to risk a repeat of Woody not showing up. Now, I'm watching this and thinking, oh, my gosh, the bystanders must have thought they were witnessing a kidnapping. Yeah. Except for the fact that, I guess, there were film crews. And one of the things I learned in college in my film classes is you can get away with just about anything when you have a camera. So the boys did make it into the studio to record their demo, which was The Prince. Buster, he sold the heat With a rock beat An earthquake is erupting But not in Orange Street A ghost dance is preparing You got to help us with your feet If you're not in a mood to dance Step back, grab yourself a seat Uptown Jamaica, but we promise you a treat. I bust the bummy over with your bogus dance, shuffle me up my feet. Even if I kept on running, I'd never get to Orange Street. And so that more or less brings us to the end of the film. Now there is one more chapter. It's called End Credits. Not quite end credits, but you get the idea. The screen then cuts to the word saying now. And we see the band getting ready backstage. Carl, being Carl, is being a complete ham. The rest of them are telling jokes. Lee jumps into Carl's arms. Mike is looking for his sunglasses. They happen to be on his head. And they take the stage as the chowed, <laughs> chowed crants. Then they take the stage as the crowd chants. And we hear the song. You know it, the best madness song ever. It's Baggy Trousers. Naughty boys in nasty schools, and masters breaking all the rules, having fun and playing fools, smashing up the woodwork tools. All the teachers in the pub, passing man a ready rub, trying not to think of when that lunchtime bell will ring again. Oh, what fun we had, but did it really turn out bad? All I learned at school was how to bed. Too much to do for food. The headmaster's had enough. 
then they conclude with a little bit of a montage of some of the boys better known videos in 81. You know, it's really interesting to me to see this and realize they must have really been a big deal in England in 81 that they could do something like this. They could finance something like this, but that there would be an audience for this. Meanwhile, we had barely heard of them over here in the United States. You know, I mean, there was one step beyond that kind of had a little bit of chart action, but that was about it. So this was all well before our house, which was 82 and, you know, their, their big international success. They were already kind of a local phenomenon. Uh, no, that they were. They were a local phenomenon. And that's pretty much the point of both opening credits and end credits. Uh, they were establishing that they were international stars at that point. So they had suffered through what um, pretty much all of Take or Leave It was trying to get at their, their early days. So they slogged along. They had their ups and downs, but finally they were accepted and they were successful. And that's pretty much the premise of that that last scene. And I think maybe this was even intended to be a little bit inspirational. You know, look, look how we started off and look what we've achieved. And, you know, like a don't give up on your dreams kind of thing. You know, so many reasons why I think that this movie like never, never really made it over here, you know, never really, I mean, it obviously wasn't shown at theaters, but you know, very few people over here have heard of it. So, um, I mean, it's a neat little piece of madness lore. You know, it's it, it's fun to watch. It's fun to see the boys in their younger days. And I mean, they're all ridiculously attractive when they're young. Uh, you know, I mean, Lee, Lee was really quite handsome back in the day. And, you know, uh, Carl, Carl looks like he's about 12 years old smoking a cigarette. I mean, obviously, I know he's older than that, you know, but they all are ridiculously good looking guys. And you can tell they're having a lot of fun with it, you know, so good on them, you know, for wanting to make something to document, I guess, for their friends, their family, you know, how they got to where they are. So good on them. Yeah. And it's a fine offering. I mean, uh, nobody sinks a lot of money into a lot of uh, music, uh, either documentary-ish style things or um, bio pics of bands of that stature at that point. Um, we know that that's all changed these days, but in the 70s and early 80s, and I would argue well up through the 90s, um, these were things where it was, uh, they were, the target market was already built-in fan base. And if it brought along a few other people, all the better. So, um, yeah, there wasn't the budget there. This was still done extraordinarily quick and extraordinarily cheap. What happens typically is these things get storyboarded. And then, uh, you know, the musicians who are not actors get a crash course in acting out their specific things and hope for the best. These guys were doing this without that literally tightrope walk without the safety net. So what you get is a bit raw. It's a bit underproduced. It's a bit naive and a bit novice. But um, in spite of that, re 
really, they do all right. You know, this isn't high art. This isn't the sort of thing. In fact, I, uh, when I was watching, re-watching it again today to prepare for the episode, I just turned it on. I know pretty much how this all goes. I've watched a bunch of times, but, you know, it, it doesn't really draw me in to be like, I've got to watch every freaking second of this thing because I want to miss the good part. You know, it was on in the background. That's just the sort of level of movie it is. But if you really look at it in terms of effort and time and money put into it uh, against results, damn fine job. You know, it's really interesting, I think, to contrast this with the getup. So the getup was a, a live streaming performance the boys did a year or two ago, and they were reenacting the same story. They were reenacting for uh, for stage their early days playing themselves. So it's the same story, but the boys themselves have really grown as performers and they've also matured. And I think that just the contrast between the two performances is just, it's very interesting to see. I mean, granted, they added a few new things to it. You know, their guest stars, you know, Paul Weller and uh, Roland Gift. But it actually, it's kind of almost, I think, bookending their career in a weird sort of way. You know, I don't mean to imply that, you know, their career is over. Obviously, I hope that they still have many years ahead of them. But it did kind of feel like, you know, the end in a way, you know? Yeah. uh, No, I got you. I wouldn't disagree with that. So as far as our closing song, Polly, one of the songs that was on the soundtrack that i guess the the demo tapes had disappeared for some time and then they finally turned back up when they re-released uh i think it was the was it the 35th anniversary of one step beyond I, I, one of the anniversary editions one of the yes. okay one of the anniversary editions they finally dug up the rehearsal tape from 1979 of sunshine voice and the fans lost their shit Uh, This was like the holy grail for a lot of people, I think. I don't particularly think it's a spectacular song, but I appreciate that it was kind of this lost relic from, you know, an earlier time. So for that reason, we're going to close with the rehearsal tape of Sunshine Boys. We'll be back in two weeks with something. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> we we haven't quite figured that out yet but uh it'll be worth worth tuning in for sure well on that note it's a goodbye for me and that's a goodbye for me go get a beer stateside madness sunshine voice